Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back to the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from a rooftop studio, or studio as we call it here in Morocco. I just stepped outside onto the open-air rooftop and heard the roar of the surf. There's a north wind coming down across the Mediterranean, and the surf is up down at the beach. But I'm not going to take my surfboard down there because it's, it's nighttime here in Morocco, and you can't really surf Mediterranean waves anyway. Uh, And even if I could, I don't think I would want to after suffering a body surfing accident a few years back that left me paralyzed for a while. But alhamdulillah, I'm back in action and uh, I'm ready to swim in the med maybe tomorrow, uh, but not ride any waves. Meanwhile, it's time to get into the second hour of tonight's show. In the second half of the hour, Carl Golovin comes on to talk about his discussion with Jefferson Morley about who was really behind the JFK assassination and why the research community tends to want to silence those who point the finger at Israel. And speaking of Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces apparently just executed uh, a pretty sizable number of women and children who were uh, huddling in a school in Gaza. The Israelis just went on in there and just killed them all from point blank range. And this is pretty much par for the course They've killed well over 10,000 women and children, probably 15,000 women and children, well over 20,000 people total. There's still bodies rotting under the rubble. And why are they doing this? Well, we heard in the first hour from Nikki Reed that it's mainly Western imperialism and that sort of thing. And personally, I would blame a kind of a tribal superiority complex that is rooted in the Torah, which I view as a distorted version of the real revelation from God. And the the people called Jews today never accept the universal revelations uh, from Jesus and Muhammad, peace upon them both. And they kept their tribal uh, worship of a tribal deity who makes them feel that they're the Chosenites and that everybody else is against them out to persecute them and kill them. So they have to kill the Goyim first. But maybe there's more to it than that. I'm sure there is. And one of the uh, aspects that we're talking about here in the first half of the second hour with Michael Hoffman is the issue of the Talmud. Um, Michael Hoffman is a very interesting and erudite historian, and he recently put out a piece called The Missing Link to Comprehending Israeli Mass Murder and Racism and said that missing link is indeed the Talmud, which is at the core of what passes for Talmudic Judaism today. So let's talk about that. Hey, welcome, Michael Hoffman. How are you? Uh, very good, Kevin. Thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, it's good to have you back on. And I've been, of course, reading and admiring your work uh, since I last had you on. Uh, lots of really, really good stuff. Uh, your latest uh, communique uh, doesn't get into the details, really, of wh- how the Talmud is responsible for this genocidal massacre that's going on in Gaza and to some extent, the West Bank right now. So maybe you can elaborate on that. 
Well, first, I want to preface my remarks by addressing what you said at the opening. I don't really believe that um, Talmudic Judaism is worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and indeed Jesus' father. Um, actually, they see themselves as superior to God. And there's a famous or infamous line in the uh, Talmud Bavli, in other words, the Babylonian Talmud, at Bava Metzvia 59b, in which Rabbi Yehoshua contradicts God by declaring that the law is rightfully decided on earth by the rabbis and not in heaven. And the Talmud has God admit that he was wrong. It puts these words into God's mouth. My sons have defeated me. My sons have defeated me. So it's the Talmudic mentality that contradicts God himself. And the Talmud itself as a whole is basically a rewrite and a contradiction of uh, the laws and statutes of the Old Testament, as Jesus himself pointed out in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. But it, it's to address the Talmudic basis of the Israeli Holocaust uh, in Gaza right now, we need to take a look at the difference between uh, what the left is calling uh, settler colonialism, which is certainly a symptom of the underlying Talmudic uh, hatred and dogma of genocide that's operant here, but it is all only a symptom. And to go to the very core of the weaponization of the Talmud by Zionism, because prior to Zionism, the Talmud itself had an inner doctrine which said that it was not to directly attack the Gentiles until the Messiah had returned. And so in a sense, Zionism is a real heresy inside Judaism. It came to the fore, as you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century. But, but, but his founders were atheists. They were atheists, but what happened was is with Rabbi Kook, it's sort of like Stalin. Stalin was an atheist, but when push came to shove during World War II, he put the Russian Orthodox Christian priests up on the podium and had them bless the troops as they were going by. Strictly cynical Machiavellian tactic. And it's the same thing with Zionism. Yes, they were communists, they were atheists, but they understood that what they needed was a kind of war factor which would call on heaven to support them, like Stalin did cynically uh, during World War II. So that's how uh, the religious Zionism came to the fore, which is really what's the motivation for the murderous settlers on the West Bank. I mean, that they're they're not they're not kibbutzim and they're not they're not atheists. They're uh, they're basically Talmudic, including the guy that shot. Uh, 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 Yitzhak Rabin, and he said that uh, he was quoted in the New York Times as saying, I did it because of my knowledge of the Talmud. So that's one of the driving forces. I'm not saying it's the only one, and there are a number of Judaic people inside the Israeli state and throughout the world who eschew or despise the Talmud. But nonetheless, as a driving ideology inside of Zionism today, I think people would be hard-pressed to deny it. And uh, what we have is we have some of the fundamental uh, uh, halakha, that is to say, what is the basis of uh, the Talmud is its lawmaking ability. Now, there's a lot of debate and uh, some disingenuous propaganda about the idea that the Talmud is just a series of disputes. And that's not actually true because you have to use the hermeneutic, hermeneutical tools that the rabbis use basically divided between stringency and leniency or of the zugot pairs, Z-U-G-O-T, represented most archetypally by Shammai and Hillel, Hillel representing the so-called lenient side and Shammai the stringent side. And where those two archetypal figures and their schools of thought, how they are applied to various 
Talmudic halakha is how these these laws are determined. So it's just uh, nonsense to claim that it isn't an authoritative book of laws. It's the supreme book in Judaism. The Old Testament is not. And so when we turn to Sanhedrin 57a, we see, quote, regarding bloodshed, the following distinction applies. If a non-Jew killed another non-Jew or a non-Jew killed a Jew, the killer is liable for execution. If a Jew killed a non-Jew, he is exempt from punishment. Now, I know my uh, adversaries will say that I'm taking it out of context, and that's an old shibboleth that's often employed when you bring up the, this hate speech, which is inside the Talmud, hate speech against Jesus Christ, against his blessed mother Mary, and, and of course against Gentiles. And what I say is, is that that's a fair point that to consider the context. But what the uh, rabbinic world calls context is their own interpretation of these particular texts, which is almost always deceitful. And it's an attempt to make them benign or explain them away. The actual context should be determined by the associated text itself and the various hermeneutical rules which are employed to determine those. And so we have this genocidal uh, urge inside of the uh, Talmud Bavli when it's necessary to apply it. Let's take a look, for example, at Maimonides in his books, the Mishnah Torah. Now, he's the supreme legal authority inside Ashkenazic Judaism. And what he said is when Judaic people are supreme in a society, when they have ultimate power, then they can use these different forms of genocide and oppression and violence against the, uh, the Goyim. But when Seems they like are, they're starting to do that in America, too, now with the uh, anti-free speech uh, pushback that we're getting. Right. That's true. But not, they don't have sufficient power here to actually institute the violence, except in a very clandestine fashion. But openly, where do they have the supreme power? That's in Palestine. And that's where we're seeing the Mamamedian doctrine coming forward. So here's the context when they have nearly supreme power then you'll see the full force of this violence being instituted against the non-Judaic people. And when they don't, then they, they pull back. And when I say they, again, I'm not referring to the Judaic people as a whole, but rather uh, Zionist Talmudism. That's, that's the point. And so we move on from that statement in Sanhedrin because the Talmud, being the uh, volume of Pharisaic theology, which was not written down during Jesus' time. He confronted it in, in the form of the various uh, casuistic type of disputes that the uh, rabbis attempted to entrap him in, but it wasn't until Israel killed its own Messiah that then they became so degenerate that they committed that Torah Shebeel Peth, that counterfeit Torah, not the Torah Shebiktav, which is the written Torah, but the oral Torah was committed to writing after the Pharisees became the dominant sect of Judaism uh, beginning in the late first and, and moving into the second and third centuries when first the um, Mishnah was committed to writing and then the Gemara. And then from there was an enormous pile of successive texts which also have halakhic authority uh, I mentioned uh, Maimonides, there's also Rashi, there's the Shulchan Aruch of Joseph Cairo, uh, there's the Mishnah Berua, and many others. It's thousands and thousands of laws that are derived directly from the Talmud Bavli. And among uh, the Posikim, the lawgivers, uh, the Gedolim, as they're called, is uh, is the rabbi from the Ramu Israel uh, uh, book. He wrote a book called Ramit Israel Ufrashat Hagalat, which is the su Jewish superiority in the question of exile. Now, it'll be.
Rama, the author of that book, is a marginal figure. He's not much accepted, but actually he's a product of a, uh, of a prestigious yeshiva in Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh, and, and he's not but all a marginal figure. And what he said is, let me quote from his book, the Jew by his source and in his essence is entirely good. The Gentile by his source and in his very essence is completely evil. This is not simply a matter of religious distinction, but rather of two different species. And so that statement, which is pretty much typical of many of the statements in his book, was endorsed by eminent rabbinic authorities, including the distinguished rabbi Era Kotler, who is the Rosh Yeshiva, that's to say the dean of the seminary at Lakewood. He lauded Grama for his teaching, quote, the subjects of exile, the election of Israel and her exaltation above, and the superiority to all other nations, all in accordance with the viewpoint of the Torah. Now remember, when they say Torah, they don't mean the Old Testament. They mean the Torah Shebil Peh, which is the oral Torah committed to writing what we know as the Talmud. So he says, completely in accordance with the viewpoint of the Torah based on the solid instruction he has received from his teachers. And parenthetically, uh, Kevin, a year after Grama's supremacist racist volume was published, the U.S. Congress awarded the Lakewood Yeshiva, of which he was a product, a federal grant of $500,000. Uh, so much for the separation of church and state. Uh, yeah, well, well, Michael, Michael, how, how do you explain, though, the anti-Zionist Talmudic uh, Jews um, of Naturae Carta? And then also, how do you explain how the vast majority of Talmudic Jews prior to World War II were strongly against Zionism, whereas the founders of Zionism were the opposite. They were non-Talmudic and mostly atheists. Yeah, well, I did a whole substack column uh, on that very question, which is a good one. Well, first of all, the anti-Zionist uh, Talmudists are a narrow uh, group of people. They're in a minority. There's the Satmar uh, in Brooklyn and also uh, in the Catskills area and then in Jerusalem itself in the Mia Shireen, the, the ghetto there. Um, and they are important because they have stood up for the Palestinians in a very significant way. And that's what I referenced at the beginning of the broadcast that prior to the heresy of Zionism, the Talmud, which was still a, an evil book, in my opinion, a book of hate speech and a, and a book which encouraged people to separate themselves from Jesus and to despise him and despise his mother. Nonetheless, according to the uh, sages of the Talmud, Chazal as they're known, they were warned against the idea of undertaking violence under, for example, joining armies, everything which the Zionists have done, joining armies, forming armies and fighting the Gentiles. And that's why they were able to live largely in peace with Islam and also with the uh, Palestinians for centuries. But once that that Talmud was then weaponized by Zionism, beginning with the chief theologian of early day uh, Talmudic Zionism, which is the appropriately named Rabbi Kook, K-O-O-K. And then from there, you had the majority of Israeli Orthodox rabbis, particularly the Chabad Lubavitch group, which is the most powerful here in the United States and the most politically connected, finding various casuistic type of escape clauses to justify what had been an anomaly, if not an outright heresy, for most of the history of the Talmudic people. So while I welcome the support of the anti-Zionist Talmudists, and I think it's sincere, and they've been beaten and oppressed in the Israeli state, for me it doesn't vitiate the fundamental evil of the Talmud, but nonetheless... But, but, they, but don't, they don't seem evil. I mean, I, I've met these people, and they, they, 
strike me as as basically really good, decent people who have you know genuinely compassionate, and the, their religion is somehow not teaching them all these terrible things that you're talking about. Right. Well, I think that we need to keep in mind that in Islam, blasphemy against uh, Muhammad, and in Christianity, blasphemy against Jesus are considered red lines upon which we judge people and we assess them. And so for the Talmud to say that Jesus is in hell burning in hot excrement, and recently in my research I found that they said that uh, Blessed Mary is equivalent to excrement, and when they say Jesus was a sorcerer who used the um, magic of Egypt in order to lead Israel astray, and many other vicious and filthy statements about our Lord and Christians in general, including urging ways to defeat Christianity in the world, uh, that doesn't, you know, however genteel and kind and decent they may be as human beings, I'm not judging them whatsoever, an individual person, I mean, I don't know I'm not God, so I don't know what grace he bestows on people. And as I say, I welcome their support and the support they've given to the Palestinian people, which has been courageous. But I cannot, any more than a a Muslim could uh, endorse any type of a person who would uh, cast um, pornographic aspersions on Muhammad, I myself cannot endorse as, as good folks people who are adherents of a book like the Talmud, which says what it does about Mary and Jesus. Well, of course, I'm sure you realize, Michael, that Muslims feel exactly the same way, that, that insulting Mary and Jesus is every bit as bad as insulting Muhammad, because they're all uh, these sacred uh, figures. And indeed, the Quran defends uh, Mary against the calumny of the Jews. So, um, yeah, we're very much on the same page uh, there. So um, moving on to the the, uh, the question of uh, how this uh, approach this this kind of horrific call it a distortion or call it a kind of a realization of the pre-existing essence of Talmudic Judaism has turned so genocidal. Uh, it, do you think that some of it is related to uh, the eschatology um, and this awaiting the advent of the Messiah who they apparently think will be a military conqueror who essentially subjugates the goyim? Well, yes. I mean, there is a case that what you have is is that they believe that this, both the study of the Talmud and the violence against the goyim in the in in occupied Palestine are things that will hasten the coming of the Messiah. That's certainly part of the uh, ideology. There's no question about that. But I think that the Talmudic doctrine itself motivates them, uh, as we've seen in various books which are not reported in the mainstream media, and even much of the Muslim world may not be aware of them because I haven't seen much publicity for them in uh, Iranian publications. The, that, uh, For example, the one that I, I see your column in occasionally, the English language paper out of Canada and the others, they they, they will mention it in passing. Uh, for example, the homo, homicidal theology imparted in in a book from 2009 uh, by the Rosh Hashiva, the dean of uh, Yitzhak Ginsburg Seminary. Yitzhak Ginsburg is the guy who said if a Jew needs a liver transplant, would it be okay to just take it from any Gentile that was passing by? And he said, sure, because Judaic life is far superior to Gentile life. And he has a seminary uh, among the hilltop youth, as they're known, the Palestinians who are listening and and your uh, confreres in the Middle East will know what I'm talking about. And this book is called Torah HaMalek, uh, and that is the King's Torah, Halakhic Clarifications Regarding Matters of Kingdom and Wars. 
And it was written by, as I say, the Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Yitzhak Shapira, in collaboration with Rabbi Yosef Elitzer. And it explicitly claims that the life of the Jew is worth more than the life of non-Jews, and it permits the killing of children. One section of the volume teaches that it's permitted to kill non-Jewish infants on the enemy side during warfare, quote, if there is a good chance they will grow up to be like their evil parents. Other reasons the rabbis furnish for the permission to kill non-Jewish children include if they block, quote, if they block the rescue of Jews, little children are often situated in this way. It is permitted to kill them because their very presence facilitates the killing of Jews. That's from page 215 of this book, Torah Hamalek. And we have this going. So, so, so that might actually uh, explain you know, this ever, bizarre, ever conducted in the Israeli state was in 2013 for Rabbi Ovedia Yosef. Eight, seven or eight hundred thousand people turned out in the Israeli state for his funeral, and he said the Arab people should be exterminated. He taught that in his 2001 Passover sermon, and you can find it in Haaretz. April 12th, 2001, quote, may the holy name visit retribution on the Arab heads and cause their seed to be lost and annihilate them. It is forbidden to have pity on them. We must give them missiles with relish, annihilate them, evil ones, damnable ones, end quote. He didn't make any distinctions between Hamas and civilians. This was all the Arab people, this was his teaching of one of the most powerful Sephardic rabbis in the Israeli state, the head of a political party, Shash. If you would promise to vote for Shash, uh, one of the genocidal parties in the Israeli state, Rabbi Yosef would give you a so-called holy am amulet, which would bring you good luck, luck in your life. So this is threaded throughout the Israeli state and its theology. And look at Netanyahu. Look who he's appointed as he uh, was brought back into power, the people that are in his cabinet are all religious Zionist Talmudic Judaics, and yet the left continues to ignore this root of the genocide against the Palestinians, and I think it's unfortunate, this neglect. You know, I, I think you have a point, Michael, especially in light of the fact that what's really driving this ever-increasing genocidal radicalization of Israeli society and policy is demographics. And the demographic picture is that the secular, atheist, Ashkenazi, European Jewish element in Israel is dying out, especially the more liberal ones, whereas the uh, religious uh, element that you talk about, the people who are indeed um, in, involved in these Talmudic teachings, uh, pro-genocidal teachings, are having huge families. And that that has already transformed the electorate in Israel, which is the reason that Netanyahu has this cabinet full of these psychopathic, uh, Talmudic, genocidal maniacs. And the fact is, it's only going to get worse because, you know, to some extent, family size is hereditary, whether it's cultural or genetic or some combination thereof, which means that these hyper-religious genocidal maniacs are going to continue to have large families for generations in the future, which means that Israel is going to get more and more and more genocidal indefinitely until it's finally put out of its misery, which really probably would ought to happen sooner rather than later, because the misery is going to be greater if it's allowed to continue. I think that's a very good point, although I would remind everyone, and I'm sure you're aware of it, that uh, atheistic Zionism on its own is responsible for many crimes and slaughters and, and mass murders. 
And also, uh, it's been made pretty clear to us that these mass murders of these atheists were something that was existing independent of the uh, Talmud because they didn't believe in it. They were using it, more or less fetishizing it as a totem. And therefore, it's, it has an independent evil of its own. And that's where, you know, the left has been correct. There well, has- it, was partly tor- it was partly Torah driven, Michael. That's what, you know, the seed of Amalek, which Netanyahu just referred to, that comes straight out of the Torah. Yeah, it comes out of the true Torah. But the thing is, is that, you know, a, a Bible uh, scholar that I is, is close to me, w- when we have our conversations, we say there really is no more anti-Semitic book than the Old Testament. And I know that's going to take a lot of parsing. People would have to read my book, Judaism Discovered, to get into the bottom of that. But um, the idea of Amalek and, and Netanyahu's invocation of it is, is that God said in the Old Testament, see, here's again that Talmudic nullification of the word of God that Jesus talked about in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. In the word of God, in the true Torah, not the Torah Shebeel Peth, the oral law, but the true Torah, God said, I will wipe out the memory of Amalek. And that memory was successfully supposed to be wiped out. So only nullifiers of the scripture, and this is where Netanyahu exposes himself as a fraud, would bring this up for now and say you are to march against Amalek. Amalek doesn't exist in the world anymore, according to the Old Testament, but it does according to the Babylonian Talmud. Very interesting. Well, of course, the relevant part that motivated Netanyahu was the fact that this passage uh, supposedly has God ordering uh, the Jews to kill the men, women, children, babies, and even the animals. And that's not the only genocidal passage in the Torah itself, which did inspire atheists like Ben-Gurion. Even though he didn't believe in God, he believed that the God he didn't believe in had given him this land to commit genocide in and indeed inspired uh, genocide in him. So again, I, I still think that people like Lauren Guyanot, who's critiqued the, uh, the true Torah uh, as a deeply problematic document, are uh, probably, it makes more sense to me than the Christian apologetics for this belief that the Torah is, is authentic and well-preserved. Well, as a Christian, I have to believe that the Torah is authentic and well-preserved because the Lord Jesus Christ said, the scriptures testify of me, and the New Testament hadn't been written or even fully completed when he was saying those words. And he said uh, to the Pharisees, "You, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, but because you don't follow Moses and you don't f- believe in Moses, you don't believe in me. So, you know, Jesus and his disciples quoted the Old Testament favorably hundreds of times. And um, that particular French scholar that you're quoting there is basically reanimating the heresy of Marcion, which for those of us who are conservative Christians, that battle has been fought and won a long time ago, but perhaps it needs to be refought. And I may not be the most qualified to debate uh, people who are uh, anti-Old Testament, but I'd be willing to give it a twirl with that particular gentleman that you're talking about. No, but nonetheless, as a as a follower of Jesus Christ, with with the praise and glory that he gave to the Old Testament, I myself have to be in line with that. But I understand what you're saying. Right. The, the Islamic position is that some large bulk of the Old Testament material is indeed uh, what's left of an authentic revelation. And precisely how much is well-preserved is up for debate. Um, But we do believe that it's not completely perfect. And that makes sense to me based on my readings of it. When the last time I read the Old Testament all the way through, my reaction was this is a masterpiece of literature. But anybody who thinks this is divine scripture 
in inerrant and perfectly preserved would have to be out of their mind. But maybe, you know, that was my reaction at the time. Maybe next time I read it, I'll, I'll see something different. In any case, we, we basically at the end of that half hour. So, uh, Michael Hoffman, thank you so much for elaborating on your uh, very, I think, uh, pointed and, and largely valid uh, critique of this Talmudic aspect of this horrific series of massacres and, and arguably genocide that's going on right now in Palestine. And so let's send people to your website where they can find your work. Uh, that would be revisionisthistory.org. And I also have a column on Substack called Michael Hoffman's Revelation of the Method. Okay, highly recommended. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michael. It's great having you back on the show. God bless. Keep up the good work. You're a courageous man, Kevin. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You are, you too. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's Michael Hoffman, and he's uh, one of the most interesting uh, historians out there, uh, right up there with E. Michael Jones as one of those uh, Christians who are saying things that you're not allowed to say anymore, but they're saying it anyway. And uh, this is the sort of thing that makes me think that, hey, uh, you know, Christianity, it's uh, it's not a complete waste. Uh, it's certainly falling upon. Uh, it's had better days. Let's put it that way. But it's uh, it's great to see that there are people inspired by that tradition uh, doing wonderful things like Michael Hoffman is. OK, well, we're coming into the second half of the second hour and it's time to bring on formal former federal special agent Carl Golovin. He's a 9-11 whistleblower, um, did work involved in what really happened at the World Trade Center uh, and especially Building 7. And since then, he's been investigating the larger situation and come to the conclusion that there has been a kind of a, a criminal element centered in the uh, worst of the ethnic Jewish community at the highest levels of power that's been involved not only in 9-11, but also in the JFK assassination, uh, which he sees as largely an Israeli job. And he's been pursuing that angle at JFK research conferences and getting some pushback because, well, let's face it, uh, if you want to know who rules you, just uh, ask who you're not allowed to criticize. And we all know who that is. So let's uh, let's discuss it with Carl Golovin. Hey, Carl, are you there? Kevin, Dr. Barrett, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. I, I should probably clarify, though, I, I do believe there is a Anglo-American, including uh, obviously Christian Zionist aspect to the machinations of uh, Zionism in the last 150 years, and probably including in JFK's demise. But I would say that JFK's demise was absolutely a... Uh, Zionist coup foreign and domestic, um, from which you know, we obviously haven't recovered, and 9-11, of course, built on that to get the U.S. to apply its resources, military, uh, in uh, well, furtherance of what Christopher Berlin describes as the Yanon plan, whereby uh, the countries around Israel, standing in the way of a, quote, greater Israel, um, are being balkanized to uh, prevent any opposition to a greater Israel. Yeah, they're sure uh, succeeding with their divide and conquer strategy. You know, things were much better uh, 50, even you know, 60, 70 years ago as the uh, Arabic speaking world where I now live was moving towards unity. There was even a brief United Arab Republic uh, consisting of Egypt and Syria merged into one country. 
But since then, Zionists and their Oded Yunon plan have succeeded in factionalizing and balkanizing uh, this part of the world uh, to the benefit of Zionism. Uh, so let's let's go back to the JFK assassination when that that actually was the same era as these moves towards Arab unity, including the establishment of the United Arab Republic. And JFK was all really in favor of that. He was in favor of the formerly colonized Arab world um, getting on its feet. And he took the side of the Algerians in their revolution against the French occupiers and seemingly even leaned towards the Palestinian cause, although he obviously couldn't say that very loudly. But, of course, not saying it loudly didn't end up helping him anyway. Well, so, Carl, you've been going to these JFK conferences and being, you know, involving yourself in the JFK research community, which I used to follow closely from about 1974 uh, through about the early 90s. And since then, I haven't followed it nearly as closely. Apparently, um, you know, it's, it's, it's continued on its merry way, and the latest focus has been getting all the records released. Apparently, they're still sitting on these records, even though the JFK uh, Assassination Records Act passed in the wake of the film JFK in the early 90s, mandated that they all be released. But apparently, national security tells us that they can't be. And so that's been the big uh, controversy. And uh, you recently had a conference on that with the Mary Farrell Foundation and Jefferson Morley, the author of the biography of James Jesus Angleton, the CIA counterintelligence chief, who's at the top of everybody's list of JFK assassination suspects, uh, was there on a panel. And you asked him some hard questions. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, about your experience of the JFK uh, research community and how it deals with this uh, issue of the Zionist element in the assassination. Thank you, Kevin. Actually, I've, I've followed the... Um that research community for decades, uh, been to many conferences, but only in recent years, actually years ago, I you know, personally met, spoke, uh, had dinner with Mark Lane and even did a little bit of research for him. Um, just on the wow, side. Cool. He, he was one of my heroes uh, from way, from well, way he back. Was my, he was a hero for me too. And it's, it's been really hard to accept that quite possibly he, he would only lead us to about the seven ring on the bullseye. He wasn't going to lead us to the, you know, the central aspect of why things or how things really happened. Yeah, he pointed the CIA, but he, yeah, I have to go back through his books and see if he ever even mentioned James Angleton, you know, exclusive liaison to Mossad and, uh, you know, fingerprints on Oswald, obviously, yeah, loyalty, high degree of loyalty, higher degree of loyalty to Israel than to the U.S. But, but getting back to the conferences, I, I was not able to ask Jefferson Morley a question at the conference that just occurred at the Wecht Forensic Institute at Duquesne University just uh, about a month ago. Uh, uh, Jefferson refused to take questions. Had uh, maybe a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, Jefferson Morley and Larry Schnapp, who's been a executive of both Kappa and uh, which sponsors JFK conferences and uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation, they were having a press conference at the National Press Club, and I was able to, you know, I wanted to ask a question, and there was no microphone for the very small crowd. There were only maybe half a dozen of us uh, seated for this event. So uh, Larry probably regrets it. He, he allowed me up to the uh, microphone, and I, I asked some pointed questions, raised some issues. For example, that JFK had... Uh, uh, based on the Levon affair, uh, 1954 Israeli false flag terrorism against uh, U.S. interests in Egypt, 
the U.S. Senate held hearings and recommended that JFK order the uh, Israeli lobby to register as foreign agents, which uh, JFK issued the order through his attorney general, RFK, and it was not complied with. The JFK was assassinated within four months, and I believe the entity was the operating hey, as APAC, which... Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sorry. You faded out for a second. I don't know if it's on my end or not. I I should have good coverage where I am. Um, okay, yeah, so but, it's probably on my end, so just keep talking. Uh, <laughs> don't mind at, me. At what, at, what, at what point was I faded out? Uh, let's see. You, you had mentioned that uh, JFK had ordered his attorney general, RFK, to – Israel allowed to register under the Foreign Agents Act, and then he was killed four months yeah. later. Yes, okay. And uh, so APAC uh, incorporated and arguably today are the most corrupting influence on Congress in terms of their fidelity to their oaths to protect the Constitution because there's a lot of pressure to have a superseding loyalty to Israel. But I also mentioned at that, that uh, conference where Morley and Schnapp were both present that uh, according to Lord Guillenot's marvelous text, The Unspoken Kennedy Truth, he quotes a, an autobiography of one of uh, Ruby's attorneys who said, uh, yeah, Ruby, quote, told the attorney, I did it uh, to prevent a pogrom of American Jews over the assassination. And apparently he said both to another attorney and his own rabbi, uh, Jack Ruby being Jacob Rubenstein, uh, yeah, Jewish mafia, not not. Sicilian mafia, that he did it for the Jews. So I, my suspicion is really that uh, from the very moment you know, LBJ was raised as a Zionist, uh, I think Israeli publications have even argued he was technically Jewish because I think he had a grandmother or two or great-grandmothers who were in fact Jewish, and it is the one clear loyalty he displayed through his political career through his life was to the chosen people. So uh, I imagine from the time he was forced onto the ticket with JFK, if not before, that you know the wheels were turning to <clears throat> create uh, you know, the assassination in Dallas. Because, of course, at that time, yeah, Israel was in a very precarious position, and they were desperate to get nuclear weapons. JFK was desperate to keep you know, Israel from getting nuclear weapons, to prevent nuclear uh, weapon proliferation. So... Uh, here, JFK has ordered the Israeli lobby to register as foreign agents. He has, uh, you know, he's in, engaged in intense correspondence with the Prime Minister of Israel, Ben-Gurion, over the nuclear weapons issue. And he had, I believe, insisted that the by then displaced 800,000 Palestinians displaced by Israeli terrorism be allowed to return to their homes. So, well, that part, uh, well, it's all just a hundred-year slow-rolling genocide. But most recently, the JFK conference at the Wecht Institute in Pittsburgh last month, uh, six weeks or more before that, I actually sent funds to be a sponsor, a co-sponsor of the conference. And I wanted to have, uh, I requested, I sent an image of the cover of Lawrence's book, The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. It would have been displayed in all of the uh, conference brochures uh, on the screen during the, uh, the big screen during the event. Um, and strangely, just a, two weeks or so before the conference, I'd also been referred by Ben Wecht with the Institute to the campus Barnes & Noble, and they readily agreed that they 
they have access through Barnes and Noble's uh, distributor to carry Lauren Gino's book, The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. And normally they would just have three or four copies for a conference, not knowing whether it would sell. And I agreed to uh, you know, buy any unsold copies uh, up to 40. They, they actually agreed to order 40 copies, and uh, I would have acquired any just at their cost that were not sold. But I was confident uh, a year ago I had sold uh, or well distributed for donations on behalf of Lauren. Um, Close to 100 copies between a G. Edward Griffin Red Pill Expo without approval at CAPA's 2022 conference in Dallas. CAPA would not rent a table to me to distribute the book. So anyway, two weeks before the conference this year in Pittsburgh, uh, I'm notified by Ben Wecht that, well, in conjunction with CAPA, they've decided to cancel my sponsorship. That is just too sensitive right now with what's going on in Israel and they understand the you know the gist of Lawrence's book, but they went a step further. Actually, Kappa canceled with nasty language canceled my uh, participation in the annual uh, banquet at which Cyril Wecht was going to be uh, you know the honored guest as he often is for the JFK conferences. So that was a bit odd. But then I never heard from the Barnes and Noble, so I was anticipating the books would still be sold. But yeah, I called just to make sure and was told that, oh, no, they had canceled all that, but they didn't think it was appropriate to, or necessary to notify me. So I still showed up. Uh, you know, another aspect of this, there was an uh, invitation for posters on JFK assassination research to be displayed, and Lawrence uh, had uh, together, it was considered a joint project, he put together, a, from his work, a, a 36 by 40-inch uh, poster, which uh, described all aspects of the evidence that are in his book and uh, very professionally done. I had it printed on uh, uh, film board or plastic stock at FedEx uh, office and I took it to Pittsburgh and well, anyway, before arriving, we were told that uh, the poster was not considered uh, academically sufficient. It was not allowed. And actually I, I covered it up and brought the copy in to show to Ben Wecht during the conference and asked him, well, gosh, did it still just be shown? I mean, this is just the content of the book. And uh, he was just adamant, no, no, get that thing out of here. So, uh, yeah, not allowed to show it. And so I was able to ask questions of, in particular, Rob Reiner and also of, um, uh, I'm sorry, David Talbot. And Rob Reiner, you know, I went through some of these various uh points that, uh, of evidence that uh, strongly imply Israeli uh, involvement, uh, Mossad involvement. And Rob Reiner, uh, who I guess is doing a series of podcasts or TV episodes, whatever, about the assassination, well, in the first you know, three seconds, he just did a complete change of direction. He wanted to talk about how, how um, you know, Vietnam, that was the center of the whole world that caused a divide in America. And I, I clarified in my question of uh, and comments to David Talbot, no, really, the Middle East is what changed entirely um, and has been a significant factor ever since because you know, all of JFK's policies were reversed when Johnson became president. Uh, from that point on, well, here, here we are. I, I actually have the audios of those to uh, play if you... Yeah, I'm not sure we want to spend time on that. It's uh, about three minutes each. But also, 
Lori, Lori Spencer, who is evidently close to RFK Jr., just held a, uh, uh, a Twitter or an X space uh, open dialogue, maybe uh, 500 or more participants. And uh, I was called on. I, I was very pleased to be called to speak. And uh, I went through, again, this information, citing Lord Guinot's The Unspoken Kennedy Truth. Also, a book, uh, The Controversy of Zion by Douglas Reed. I know Michael Hoffman, also, Hoffman uh, who you had on earlier, has previously uh, been dismissive of Douglas Reed's work. But when I've tweeted back to him asking him to clarify, he hasn't done so. Also, I was a little bit upset Michael Hoffman seemingly didn't want to refer to Lord Guinot by name. He would just say that person which that's not really very elegant of him. I, I would appreciate him to uh, you know, be more communicative and more um, receptive of dialogue. Well, maybe he had, he had some kind of a pronunciation issue, you know, with French names. Sometimes it, that could be part of it. But, yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's Lauren Guido is doing, he's doing, he's doing amazing work, uh, and it's worth learning his name. Oh, I, I adore Michael Hoffman. I, I have a copy of his uh, – Four-inch thick text, Judaism discovered, and uh, yeah, I don't want to to uh, offend him, but uh, gosh, I would love to have those two in a online collegial discussion of their perspectives. Also, I have yeah, I'll try. I'll try and get him on the radio show. That's what that's what Michael was actually suggesting, and and possibly maybe E. Michael Jones too, because both Michael Hoffman and E. Michael Jones, the Catholic. Uh, don't approve of the so-called Marcionite heresy that they think that Laurent adheres to. So it might be interesting to have a kind of a couple of debates with Laurent and those guys. I think it would be wonderful. And, and by the way, I have to uh, say that I, I find the, the text that you translated for Laurent uh, from Yahweh to Zion extraordinary. It's on a whole plane higher that I think a lot of people will initially be uh, – intimidated by by the depth of uh, spiritual insight in that text. And I find that uh, Douglas Reed's The Controversy of Zion, which goes back into the geopolitics of, well, the last 2,000 years, but also in a more uh, person-in-the-street level understanding of uh, religious or spiritual history would have uh, would, would find more easy to comp- comprehend uh, Initially, but briefly back to uh, Lori Spencer's uh, X space event. Yeah, I was able to touch all of these uh, points, which Lori Spencer assured that uh, that RFK Jr. will be hearing what is was said during that that event. So I'm I'm optimistic. I've I've delivered books personally to RFK Jr. at a uh, Ron Paul conference at Dulles Airport um, several years ago, including. Uh, Lawrence's book, The Unspoken Kennedy Truth, also another of his books, uh, uh, Our God is Your God Too, But He Has Chosen Us, really about uh, the mechanisms of, uh, of Jewish politics. In fact, it's sub- subtitled uh, Essays on Jewish Power. I gave him a copy of uh, uh, Christopher Boleyn's The War on Terror, which is a fantastically concise explanation to how 9-11 was driven by um, Zionist objectives, and was that solving 9/11, the Bolin book? I didn't actually hand him that. I handed him uh, the War on Terror, which is the last book, uh, most recent book Bolin has published. It's very brief, maybe 100 pages or less, and uh, very, very direct to the point about uh, 9/11 being a 
false flag event to uh, in cooperation between Mossad and U.S. interests at the highest level, uh, political, military, intelligence level, to facilitate our going, you know, to, to get the whole U.S. population to go on board with, oh, gosh, you know, radical Islam is the enemy. We need to go make war on all these neighbors of Israel. So, uh, yeah. So, so what do you think RFK Jr. is is thinking when he basically presents himself as a you know more Zionist than thou? He's he's a flame you know, flame breathing uh, extremist Zionist, which totally doesn't fit with any of his other positions. And, and you know, it makes me wonder if he is resisting through hyperconformity. I just wrote this sort of half facetious piece uh, saying that if we're not allowed to argue against Zionism. And, and specifically this genocide that's going on in Palestine right now, then, you know, we're going to be stuck. Uh, what, how can we resist? Well, we could use this Baudrillardian uh, strategy of hyperconformity, that is, be more Zionist than now to the point of absurdity. And it, it strikes me as maybe that's what RFK Jr. is up to. Wait, what, what's, why is he such a Zionist when, when the Zionist killed his father and his uncle? I suspect that from early on in his life that um, – there would have been, uh, yeah, Jewish Jews play in, in proximity to him who were lover, loving, nurturing, adoring. And I don't know if this is exactly Stockholm syndrome, but I, I'm sure, you know, just as I, you know, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, I'm not fully comprehending how, just how, how Jewish that town was or is. Uh, it's also where NIH is located, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, one has friends who are marvelously, you know, congenial and intellectual to interact with, and you know, one doesn't think about the the broader, even global community in which they're integrated, to which they must have an overriding loyalty. So I that, think- that, that that doesn't compute for me. I mean, I I grew up, you know, in a philo-Semitic family with lots of Jewish friends, hung out with all kinds of Jewish people and stuff. And still from, you know, my teenage, by my teens, I could easily see that, you know, the Jews were, the, the Zionists were wrong and that the, you know, the Palestinian conflict, obviously the Palestinians were right. And I was always able to say that sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently with pretty much all the Jews I got to know. I, I just find it hard to imagine that somebody would, you know, as, as smart as RFK Jr. could be so stupid as to not see this all too obvious reality simply because he had Jewish friends. Well, I, I would say beyond friends, I think people who were placed in order to purposefully influence him. But I, I've actually I'd written an email to Colonel McGregor positing the, the, the question, is, is has RFK been captured like Stockholm Syndrome, or is he just you know, very much uh, aware of all these issues we've discussed during our talk today, and he's just going to wait till the right time for them to come out? Uh, I think the latter is possible, though I, <clears throat> I would feel better about his potential security were he to just overtly put all this out there, because once it's out there, uh, of, well, it's more conspicuous if anyone were to to try to derail him uh, from from becoming president. Well, no kidding. Still- I mean, they killed his, his father with a Palestinian patsy, and now he's set up to be shot by another Palestinian patsy, ostensibly. Well, I mean, of course, on, after 9-11, the... Uh, those interests actually pointed back and said, oh, gosh, remember uh, when the Palestinian killed uh, RFK? Gosh, that was the first instance of of uh, Islamic terrorism against uh, the U.S. But, and, of course, Sirhan was actually Christian, not Muslim, but whatever. Well, that, those details, Kevin, I, yeah, 
I'm glad you're you're reminding everybody of them. I really. Uh, so <laughs> I, I I think I think the issue with RFK. I mean, it might be so simple that if he gets elected, the first thing he does as president is unseal without redaction all of the uh, JFK assassination related records, and maybe oh gosh, there it is. There was actually you know a complete Zionist aspect to the event, and uh, that that might be one way he would anticipate this unfolding. So, so if that's in the records, which records would that be in? Uh, well, among, I mean, there are documents that are sealed that have never been released, uh, even partially. But ponder this. I mean, how? Uh, this is a question I would like to ask RFK Jr. personally, uh, directly. If I ever had a question, I would ask him, Mr. Kennedy, how how might the 1954 Mossad false flag attacks on U.S. interests in Egypt? Uh, created a motive for ultimately created a motive for uh, Zionist interest to assassinate your uncle as well as your father. And of course, the the direct connection is the uh, you know JFK ordered the Israeli lobby through RFK to register as foreign agents. That would have put a serious crimp in the evolution to where Israel has become now. Uh, not to mention the nuclear issue. Of course, both the the uh, Warren Commission, even the HSCA, neither ever pondered or were allowed to discuss, consider the nuclear or the foreign agent registration issues as pointing towards uh, yeah, interests that benefited from and its potential motive for assassinating Kennedy. Oh, I have yeah. a, this is a here's a tidbit that you may not be aware of the. Uh, Assassination Records Review Board, are you aware that their executive director, David Marwell, when he left at the com completion of their work, he became, um, I think, director or top executive of the Holocaust Museum in D.C.? Yeah, I saw that. That's that's pretty uh, telling, isn't it? Well, and I, I asked uh, Doug Horn at the conference and said, well, Doug, if, yeah, if, uh, if there was any evidence that might have been retrievable from all the federal uh, – agency records uh, under the ARRB, uh, the JFK Records Act, would Marwell have been in a position to uh, make sure none of that ever got entered into the, the records, yeah, the, the records of official records? Uh, and Doug's reply was, uh, you better believe it. Quote, you better believe it. Some of these guys seem like specialists in, you know, constructing false history, you know, like Philip Zellico, the head of the 9-11 Commission, uh, calls himself a specialist in the creation and maintenance of public myth. And this guy sounds like uh, another one who could describe himself that way. Uh, yeah, I don't know where, where, how could we get into where it began or, or where it, 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 well, creation of myth. Uh, might there be any of that in Michael Hoffman wouldn't like to hear me say this, but in the crafting of the uh, what we call the Old Testament to uh, even co-opt some of the uh, both history, both uh, true and, and or uh, fables of other religions, incorporating them into the, uh, you know, the Old Testament narrative. And we're going to have to leave it there. But, and admit that, yeah, they're, this group of people has had uh, tremendous storytelling talent down through the ages. Well, thank you so much, Carl Calvin. It's been great. I uh, appreciate the work you're doing and raising those hard questions and continuing at it stubbornly, uh, pursuing the truth. God bless you. Keep it up.
Thank you, Kevin. Okay, take care. That's Carl Galvin, whistleblowing former special agent of Kevin Barrett on Truth Jihad Radio since 2006. Back next week, a couple weeks.